Thank you, worship team. That was amazing. Let me ask you a question. Last week, I guess I'll open it with a statement more than a question, but last week we really talked about this, this massively important sermon that, that Peter preached, how simple it was and how effective it was, and it led 3,000 souls to become followers of Christ in, in one day, and we all say amen, and we'd all say yes, I'd love to see that. Um, every pastor I know would love to have that type of sermon. I make those jokes, right? And it's not really a joke. That would be awesome if everybody were to come forward and get baptized after a sermon. That would be pretty awesome to see. But we might even say, well, we expect Peter to do that, right? If he was the guy who would stick his foot in his mouth before Christ was crucified, he might be the person who would continue to just be so bold after Christ had resurrected and ascended onto the throne. But what about just the random person who decides to follow Jesus? What about them? What about the person who kind of grown up in the church, who's never been a deacon, an elder, a youth pastor, whatever, a preacher? What about them? What are they to do? What are they to risk? And I, and I ask you the question, what are you willing to risk for the cross? I mean, history is littered with examples, not just in the Bible. And I'll talk about one later named Richard Wormbrand, who's, who's a man who was willing to really risk something for his faith. And we, we might think about this as like, you know, the elders, the pastor, those who are paid to be here, you know, the pastor in that sense, the youth youth minister, you know, those people, that's kind of their job title, right? They're supposed to get up and preach a sermon. We want our pastor to come out here, and we really want him to give us a good one, and and then we want to be excited when we come out of the church and things like that, but to what end? To what end? What are you willing to risk, brothers and sisters? To be a kingdom citizen means taking risk. I know we live in America. It's comfy. Our, our biggest persecution is usually on social media. So if you don't get on social media, you don't feel that persecuted. There's your prescription for it, by the way. We live in a culture that's pretty soft, right? On all fronts. We don't really risk anything. But you look at our brothers and sisters across the seas, look at our Christian brothers and sisters in Pakistan or in northern Africa, look in Iraq, look in other places, look in India, look in these places where the church has flourished. Look at even church history. When did the church flourish? While it was being persecuted. In fact, even during, this goes just back to a couple years ago when ISIS, the threat of ISIS in Mosul, Iraq, right, was at its peak, right, before Americans went over there and other people from the world went over there, freelance agents to go and help rescue people from ISIS. Do you know what the fastest growing religious group was in Mosul, Iraq? Christianity. Do you know what one of the highest target persecution groups in Mosul, Iraq was Christianity. 
In fact, every time the church has been persecuted, you start understanding why the Bible says the gates of Hades shall not overtake it. I always laugh in the face of history of all these people like, we can stamp out Christianity. I'm like, others have tried and they have not, they have not succeeded. Yet in America, every time we come to a sermon, you might come to a church, a sermon, a hear, go to a conference or whatever it is, and you might leave like the kids who leave camp, right? If you remember, like I remember being a kid going to Grove Camp and leaving Grove Camp going, I'm going to change the world. Only a couple weeks later to fade right back into the normalcy of everything I had already been doing. So when I read stories And I titled this sermon, you know, the sermon that fell on deaf ears. And it was like, why in the world would you title a sermon that way? Because, you know, I want to point it out. When we jump forward, when we take a step, a risk to follow Christ, to do what Christ has called us to do, it doesn't always mean monumental success in the thing, in the ways that we think of success. In fact, when we start taking steps, start placing faith in Jesus Christ, and start doing what he's commanded us to do, it may come with struggle. More often than not, it will. Raise your children in the Lord. They reach teenage years, you're going to find struggle. Don't believe me? If you're not there yet, just wait. Right? And that's a joke. Try and live for the Lord in the lost and fallen world. You will find opposition to it. We're filled with ideas of desire and greed and all these different things that that combat around our mind and and the way that we live. And we're told to fight all of those things and to pursue righteousness. So what are we going to do when it hits us in the face? Peter stood and he preached at Pentecost, 3,000 souls that day saved. It continues to say that daily they added to their number. They didn't meet in private. We don't see that until much later, until after chapter 9 where we start seeing people meeting in their houses a little bit more. Right, but it says throughout the book of Acts, I'm kind of giving an overview, right? Even though that that some of them were uh, captured and taken before the Sanhedrin on two occasions and beaten and left, it says in one point they were beaten and they left rejoicing, right? To the point when they went to the house, the girl thought it was Peter's ghost and not Peter himself, so she got excited, went and told, left Peter outside, Right? But it says they were publicly meeting in Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, a portion of the temple where they were meeting and they were going out every day and they were declaring the word of the Lord to the people around Jerusalem. They, were no, they weren't afraid. I love that it says that they beat them and let them go and it says that they went away rejoicing for they had been counted worthy to be beaten. I mean, what kind of sick individual thinks that way? Yeah, hit me again. Yes. But they were willing to risk something. Christians in another part of the world, they're really willing to risk everything, livelihood, family. Muslim people, when they come to Christ, Mormons in our own culture, if they turn away from the Mormon church and they start following the one true Jesus, they are often ostracized, cast out, thrown away. Muslims get the same treatment. To follow Jesus means complete ostracization, uh, uh, being to complete, bleh, 
to be completely ostracized from everything they know and love. They risk something. And what's fascinating is it's not just those who have been called to be preachers or in leadership in church. One of the guys that we're talking about today, the guy that we're really talking about today, Stephen, he has a Greek name. He is chosen one of the seven. Some scholars believe he's chosen simply because he's a Greek. He's a Greek Jew, and they're trying to handle a Greek-speaking issue. The Grecian widows who are not getting the daily distribution of food that they need, so they go, these seven dudes right here, they fit the category of what we're looking like. They choose them. Go and handle this issue. So Stephen kind of gets this title deacon, right, which is the word for servant in the Bible. So Stephen becomes a servant. But when we see Stephen again, real shortly after this chapter 7 part, we go in verse 8 of of chapter 7 right here, or chapter 6 rather, it says, and Stephen, so chapter 6 verse 8, right, says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Brothers and sisters, this common dude, that's not a biblical phrase, but we can use it today. This common dude, not that he's common, right? He fits a category of servant in the Bible that we see, but he's not an apostle. He's not even counted as an elder or some other figure in the church of leadership, but he's one that they chose as was a servant in the church, and it says he's full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Not that he was doing anything, but the Holy Spirit was working through him. And it says in verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So other Greek Jews, right? Other Greek people rose up because there's been this, this guy, this guy Stephen, who all of a sudden his, he's interrupting the normalcy of religious life in Jerusalem. Are you interrupting the normalcy of religious life in your area? Stephen's just interrupting. He's been given something, the same thing that we all say that we carry, Jesus Christ. He's been given to him. And so now what does he want to do? Like you got a brand new car. You want to take out your cell phone and start posting pictures on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, right? You, you grandparents, you get a new baby, what's your Facebook feed look like? Give me a break. And here's another shot of little Cecilia. And from this angle and this angle and this angle. If you have Jesus, don't you want to do the same? Stephen's like, he's a grandparent with a new baby. He's like, yeah, check this out, check this out, check this out. And his Facebook feed is just filled with posts. Scripture after scripture after scripture. And the people that know Stephen from the past are like, dude, would you shut up? We get it. You follow Yeshua. So does everybody else. Tithing's been down in the synagogue. Temple taxes are falling away. Christianity is a vastly popular thing in Jerusalem. We say it's no, it's just a little sect, right? No, it, it had overtaken much of Jerusalem. You don't think people noticed? You don't think what happened in Ephesus was noticed? When they started melting their silver, 
throwing it away and burning their witchcrafts and doing all their other stuff? What happened there when Demetrius was like, hey, wait a minute, my sales are going down. See, when people become followers of Christ, like Stephen, things start to change. They start to give up of the other garbage in their life, right? It starts going away. And it goes away until that point where Stephen has been ministering among the other people in his life, just like Paul will later, right? And they have to lower him in a basket and get him to get away from Damascus because they're going to kill you, dude. And I love that it says here, because in, in Stephen's changed life, it says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit, notice it's capitalized, with which he was speaking. Verse 11 says, and they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him say, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases speaks to speak words against this holy place, notice that, <clears throat> and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, notice this as well, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You think Stephen was in his own power? You think he was like those debating college students on YouTube? No. Stephen was just doing what is natural for a Christian. Stephen didn't come in like an influencer with his little tripod and his cell phone and start recording videos or something. And obviously I'm being silly, right? I'm being silly. None of that existed back then. But it wasn't with the attitude of Stephen trying to get noticed. He wasn't trying to gain fame or notoriety or anything like that. He was simply doing what Christians should do. The desire that other people would know Jesus the same way that he knows Jesus. To be forgiven of his sins. To walk away from all the old stuff. All the religiosity of everything. Notice that they said he's speaking against what? Not the law, really, what's their main aim? Because Jesus pronounced destruction on Jerusalem, did he not? Amen? And so one of those things was the holy temple, right? This physical object that was the devotion of all their worship. They had long abjugated their devotion to God, by the way. The Jews were no longer following God at this point. They were following the temple, we have this temple. We're great. Look how wonderful we are. We're the followers of the one true God until the one true God came and Jesus came in the flesh and then the one true God was rejected, the cornerstone that was rejected. You think I'm being too harsh and I don't even include the rest of the text but look forward through the rest of the text and see what Stephen talks to them about. Ooh, brothers and sisters, you want to see a railing sermon on blasphemy? I challenge you this, this week, read through the rest of Stephen's sermon because I'm not covering the whole thing here. Peter was nice. Stephen's about to go through a whole diatribe of how you are nothing but blasphemous whores. And you think I'm being aggressive, just read the Old Testament. 
Stephen, just this random dude who just decided to follow Jesus, was probably one of maybe the 3,000 who were baptized that day, came up out of that water it's like, I'm going to say something. He came out of there and he said, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Then he walked around as if there's no way you could ignore what happened in Stephen's life. It wasn't any more like Stephen, oh yeah, he's just following it because it makes him popular. They definitely had heard of the fact that these guys had been arrested several times, been thrown into jail, been let out, right? Just mysteriously disappeared under the jailer, which happens again, by the way. Go to, you know, Paul and Philippi. Philippian jailer comes and <laughs> Paul said, we're still here, don't kill yourself. Just normal people. Normal people living according to the faith that they've been rescued in. <laughs> Stephen goes on before the Sanhedrin and he speaks before them in similar fashion to Peter, but like I said, it's, it's far more calling them out for their blasphemy. And I, and I wonder for a moment if Stephen, while he's going through this whole sermon, right, and all this, this information just coming, pouring out of his head, right? It's just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this, by the way, you did this, and you guys said this, and all this, all this stuff happened. And I wonder if you could see, like in the old cartoons, right, like the temperature rising and the members of the Sanhedrin, and the steam was starting to come out of their ears or something like that. And I don't wonder for a moment, like if you've ever been in a tense situation with somebody, did your did hands start to shake a little bit, and maybe you're... Maybe your mouth's starting to get dry and you're a little nervous because you're in the midst of something that seems pretty stressful and pretty tenuous and, and you don't know what's about to happen. You're, maybe you start backing up because you don't know the, the, the mental stability of that person. Is that guy going to swing on me? Right? And Stephen's going through all of this. And even as he, he builds his, his sermon, his case against them, that their main issue is that they have traded God for a temple. They have traded God who resided in a temple for Rome because they were afraid of Rome. And they worshiped a place and not the creator of the place. And that's a warning to us too, right? It's not about this building. The church isn't four walls. The church is a living force with living testimony covered in the blood of Jesus. It's not about Redwood Christian Church's building. This building could be gone tomorrow and we as a church would still continue. He continues to say and speak of what was said by God's servants. Their constant rejection of Yahweh, Yahweh's servants like even Moses. He says in seven, chapter 7, verses, the last part of 42 and 43, he says, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Raphlan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That's some pretty harsh words to Israel, isn't it? I wonder if Stephen's lip quivered or did his voice shake. 
as he said these things. I wonder if for a moment Stephen knew what was probably going to happen to him. I wonder if he just was fully aware. Like if you've ever read through Fox's book of martyrs, by the way, fantastic read. Makes you feel really good. Of those who were burned at the stake in England by the Catholic Church, and then later the, the Protestants would burn Catholics at the stake because we're so good at that, all of us humans. We like to take what God meant and mess it up so many times. But I wonder what they must have felt like. Stephen is unrelented, though. And he comes into chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, and he says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, meaning Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Some really encouraging words, right? Stephen is so unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Like, there's not a moment in Stephen, and I don't know if he's just relegated himself to whatever's going to happen now because he's been arrested, he's by himself, you know, they've concocted this story, it's very similar to the, to the death, burial, and resurrection, of, or not resurrection, but the death, and, the death of Christ, the trial of Christ, it's very similar, concocting false testimony and all these different things. And Stephen's in this moment, and he has this, this incredible moment to cower and probably die, or to stand boldly in the face of his persecutors and declare the gospel truth. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart, you heartless people who have, who have abjugated the law that was delivered to you by God's angels himself who you say you follow Yahweh and you murdered him. God came to you. The prophets who talked about the righteous one came to you. And when he finally came to you and fulfilled all the prophecies, you murdered him. And he just stands there and watches their tempers just writhe within them. And we see no one in this story, come to Christ. No baptisms. Nothing. Simply Stephen being a bold ambassador for Christ. And when I use the word ambassador, I used it the other week, right? The word ambassador, emissary, means that you are a, a, deleg a delegation Right, in an office of a nation who is not at home. Stephen, though he's in Israel, though he is a Jewish convert, right, in the sense he is a Greek speaking Jew, right, who followed Yahweh, 
and saw Jesus Christ and became a follower of Christ is now an ambassador amongst people that he used to probably call friend. Against Amongst teachers, rabbis, rabboni, meaning great teachers, against people in the Sanhedrin like Gamaliel, who is probably still there, and all these different things, who he used to look up to and look to for advice and wisdom, and has now just called them stiff-necked people who are uncircumcised. Which, by the way, that's a pretty harsh lambast on a Jew, to call them uncircumcised when they are the circumcised people. You know how difficult that might have felt for Stephen? And I, I say all this because I think we need to understand that sometimes when, when God puts us in places, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And I'm not saying that you're supposed to go to your boss tomorrow and say, you uncircumcised heathen! But the relationships that you've created with people, brothers and sisters, those relationships in the end may lead to nothing. Right? You may spend 20 years trying to draw someone unto the Lord, right? Speaking the gospel to them, loving them, taking abuse from people because that Jesus took abuse. And you may never see that person come to Christ. And you have to ask for yourself for one second, was it worth it? Was the risk worth it to declare the truth to those around you, to tell people of their sin, that they might leave all of their sinful ways and come follow Jesus or reject you? For when they reject you because of the love of Christ, they're rejecting Christ, not you. This is not a pulpit-filling sermon. This isn't like sermons down in Redding, California, where, hey, here's, you know, I want you to just feel good. Or maybe some down in Houston. Because this, my friends, is the gospel. Jesus died for the sins of many, but few choose to follow him. And all of you saw 3,000 souls on that day saved. And we see no one saved today. It doesn't mean that it wasn't worth it. Chapter 7, verses 54 through 60 says this. Now when they heard these things, they were, or I would say continued to be enraged. They ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I wonder what martyrs see. I wonder if every martyr saw this. I don't know. I've personally never been martyred, and those who have been martyred, we've never been able to record. But I just wonder. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Mob mentality at its finest. He saw this, this glorious moment. 
And it reminds me in Colossians, and this is why Colossians has been such a chief text, and we've been going through, through this with the youth group, where it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, which I didn't include in this today, but I'm including for you right here, right? It's like, but you, if you then have been born in Christ, which is not verbatim, set your eyes upon Jesus where he sits at the right hand of God and set your minds on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth for you have died and your life is hidden with him. I wonder if Stephen just is understanding something that Paul and maybe, oh man, I don't even know why that just came to my mind, but here you go. Maybe Paul writes that because of this. Because of what we're about to just read right here. In verse 57, 58 actually, it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, meaning Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who, if you don't know, becomes Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen says something very remarkable, and it's remarkable because it's very similar to what Jesus said towards his executors and to those who mocked and those who were there amongst him. He say, cried out, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was a dude that had his eyes set where they needed to be set. Stephen sat there being stoned, being crushed under the weight of everything. And he just gazed into heaven and he continued, I think maybe just continued if that got to be, keeping his vision on Jesus the whole time. And as he's staring at Jesus in the face, as he's being crushed under the weight of the stones, that a young man named Saul who is standing by and approving of the murder of this innocent man maybe heard those words, Lord Jesus receive my spirit and don't hold this sin against these men. And then I wonder if Saul, who then later becomes Paul, when he's writing to the church in Colossae, saying that in chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been brought new, been born new in Christ, been baptized in Christ, set your mind, set your eyes upon Jesus as those persecute you around you. For your life isn't here and brothers, that's to, brothers and sisters, that's to us. Our life isn't here. Our life is in Christ. And it's been hidden away, protected, glorified for a day payable upon death. So that you and I could walk out of this place as bold as Stephen. To go out and say, do you know how much Jesus loves me? Do you know what he did for me and what he's willing to do for you? If they pull out a gun and shoot you with it or do something else to you or persecute you, persecute you or maybe just unfriend you on Facebook or write some scathing comment about you that you don't care. And not that you don't care and say, well, to hell with him. But you say, I don't care I forgive you, and so does Jesus. 
I don't know the situation it is in your life. I don't know what it is that you're facing. But it certainly isn't being dragged before the Sanhedrin and stoned to death, is it? I'm getting worked up today. No, I'm good. I ain't that Baptist. So I'm joking. Joking, joking. I'm not Baptist at all. I wonder, and I do this sometimes, I read between the lines of scripture and I just sit there and wonder, did that reverberate in Saul's head? For however many years from Acts chapter 7 at the end of it to Acts chapter 9, that as he continued to persecute Christians from that moment, right? Because right after this in chapter 8 it says Saul ravaged the church, right? So he goes and he diaspores the church, he casts it out, persecutes it heavily, but I wonder... If Saul, through all, all that time, just had that in the back of his mind, that, that Stephen, I just can't get him out of my head. That one day when he was walking on the road to Damascus, long after Stephen had died and gone home to be with Jesus, that that is part of the why when Jesus met Saul face to face, And Jesus spoke to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When it talks about Saul's conversion, right, which I I don't know if I'm going to go into that next week, by the way. I don't know where I'm going after this sermon. I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) When it says that the scales fell from his eyes, that Saul took upon nourishment and then was immediately baptized. And do you know what Saul did after he was baptized? He began to go right out to Damascus and tell and preach to people about the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. So much so that they wanted to kill him. And like I made the joke earlier, they're like, Saul, you got to get out of town. So they put him in a basket and they lower him over the side. He goes back to Jerusalem. And what's he do? He continues to tell people about Jesus because Saul was changed. So much so that most of us don't even know the name Saul. We only know the name, the apostle, Paul. And Paul would go on to plant almost all the churches in the Roman world, save for a couple of them. That he would go and change the lives of many because of what Jesus did for him. For him. One who stood and approved of the murder of one of Jesus' followers. Now you tell me your life can't be changed when a murderer's life can be. You tell me that God can't work in your life when he worked in the life of Saul. He changed his life. He forgave him of his sins. You tell me God can't do that in your life. And moreover, you tell me that God can't do that in your neighbor's life. Or so what about us? I want to quickly tell you about a guy. Maybe somebody, anybody here heard of Richard Wormbrand before? Anybody ever heard, heard of the magazine? The Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you, Amber. <laughs> Glad you came in there. 
Voice of the Martyrs was a news production created by Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania. Richard Wormbrand was an atheist who then later became a follower of Christ near his death, but then he didn't die. That during World War II, he helped hide Russian soldiers from the Germans. And then when World War II was over, he began to hide Nazi soldiers from the Soviets. And not just hide them, but lead many of them to Jesus. To the point when Romania was taken over by the USSR and it became part of the, United, the USSR, Soviet Russia, that the Soviet church came in and said that we're in control of everything. And Richard Wormbrand, before an entire congregation of Soviet pastors, stood up and denounced socialism and communism and said there is only one true God and his son is Jesus Christ. That he was then arrested in prison for something like 12 years or longer at death's door for most of it. And do you know what he did while he was in prison? He led thousands of people to Christ. Many of them dying in prison, but dying in prison and being embraced into the arms of Jesus. Richard Wormbrand took a risk. He took a risk to declare the truth of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world and was persecuted heavily for it, was later released from prison on an exchange and brought to America where he developed Tortured for Christ or The Voice of the Martyrs. He also wrote the book Tortured for Christ. You tell me Jesus doesn't want to do something in your life. You tell me that Jesus doesn't want to do something in Josephine County. He doesn't want to see people abandon their sins, abandon the things that are holding them back and come to know the one true Jesus, to come to know one true way and the one true life. Our worship team, you can start coming forward. Eh? I should have said that before. Stephen did not die in vain. He spoke the message in truth. Each week, our youth kids have been given a challenge at the end of our youth time. Most of the time, they write their own challenge. This last week, I gave them a challenge, and I'm going to give you a similar challenge today. Here's your challenge for this week. Choose one, if you will. They're up there on the board. I challenge you to share what Jesus has done in your life with someone. You don't have to be a theologian a Bible scholar, or any of those things. I want you to share with someone this week how Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. Share, be vulnerable enough to share who you were and who you are now. Even if you grew up in the church, and maybe you grew up in the church under legalism or under something like that, and you can share when you actually came to know the true Jesus and what it meant. Maybe it's, it's something else. The other one is, is, is part of that first one is challenge to start praying for the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities to share that. To develop relationships with lost people, my friends. You think your, your faith, the thing that you hold so dear is for you and you alone and your little family and to protect it? No. It's to be shared. It's so that other people would know the Christ who saved you. And you can't do that unless you create relationships with people 
The other challenge is real simple. Challenge to invite somebody to come to a Sunday service. Invite somebody to come to Easter coming up. You don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing. And it's not up to you to close the deal, by the way. It's up to you to cast the seed. Let me pray for you as the worship team's going to sing a song. God, we just come before you today. I am so thankful for Stephen, but not just for Stephen, for what you did in Stephen's life. That you're willing and wanting to do in the lives of so many. God, I pray for those who are in here today who they haven't made Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. They haven't come forward to be baptized in these waters, that they're holding on to sins, that they're holding on to regret and shame. God, I just wish they would know how free I am in you, that they could be free indeed. God, I pray for those who aren't here today, that they would know the love of your son through the servants who reside here. That you would give these people the opportunity to share the gospel with other people around them. That the lost could be found. And the found ones could find the lost to bring them to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.